So we were driving home from the Combs house, the Combs family's house last night after watching the, the best worst game I've ever watched in my life. If anybody saw the Ohio State game, that was the craziest game. Crazy. But we were driving home and we are talking about what the kids would be for the block party this evening because we're just so planned out and thought out as a family. And uh, Elijah said he wanted to be me, which I thought was cute. And then Isaiah perked right up and he said, I want to be Brandon. So he, yeah. And I said, hey, in my mind, I, you keep wanting to be like Brandon. I'm all right with that. That's a good point. I don't know if you heard what Kathy said, but it's better than Isaiah wanting to be Mary. I agree. I, I, or Dan, yeah. So that is true. Well, hey, I want to welcome you back to our sermon series, Back to School 2017. In this series, we're taking a look at some of the big stories that are told in Children's Sunday School. And we have been focusing on Moses. We spent three weeks kind of looking at some stories about Moses that has happened with him, you know, things that happened with him. And uh, today we're going to switch gears a bit and we're going to talk a bit about. Uh, did I say Moses? I'm sorry, I'm confused. I'm getting ahead of myself. We talked about Abraham, but today we are going to be talking about Moses. So uh, an interesting story we're going to look at this morning, and, and my hope is that as we look at these stories, maybe you're encountering them for the first time, and, or maybe you've, you've listened to them before or have read them before, but my, my, either way, my hope is that we would come to a greater understanding of how great and good our God is and that we would just be drawn to want to love him more wholeheartedly and with, with everything we've got. So that, that's my prayer. Let me pray, and then we will look at Moses, not Abraham, today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the people that you have brought here today. Thank you for your provision over the course of this last week, your, your mercies are new every morning. Your faithfulness is unending. It's unwavering. You are so good to us, and we are glad to praise you this morning. Lord, as we look at your word, um, your word, which is such a blessing and a gift to us, we pray that you would speak to us, you would enlighten us, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us. And uh, you would just really speak right into our hearts. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be uh, camped out in Exodus chapter 2. Um, the verses are on the screen if you don't have a Bible. If you want something in your hands and you like to turn those pages, then there are Bibles um, in front of you, in the backs of the chairs in front of you. So Exodus chapter 2. Let me start right at verse 1. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him. Dabbed it? Dabbed it? Not sure. 
with uh, asphalt and pitch, put the, child, put the child in it and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. And his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, and her maidens walked along the river side. And when she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that way, and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out to the, the, the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of the matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So that's the passage we're going to look at. And uh, one of the things that really stood out to me this week is this process, this humbling process that Moses goes through in this passage. Last week, uh, we talked about, uh, through looking at Abraham, how God wants to grow a huge faith in us. Well, he, there's another thing that he wants to do in us. There's another work he wants to do in our hearts, and that is he wants to create in us great humility. And so using this passage, we're going to consider three things. Christian humility, what is it? How do you get it? And why do you need it? What is it? How do you get it? And why do you need it? So let's start with the first question, Christian humility. What is it? You know, you do not hear a lot about humility. Uh, I don't, I've never watched a TV show or, you know, looked at uh, a magazine on the front cover as I'm going through the line at Target that had something talking about humility. We live in a culture of self-promotion, right? We live in a culture where it's all about uh, building your reputation. It's about creating a name for yourself. It's about uh, creating a brand for yourself. You notice how every athlete is looking to brand themselves in some way. Our, our culture celebrates, you know, seeking fame and seeking fortune. And so, although we do not hear a lot about humility in America, the Bible has a lot to say about it because God really cares about us having it. So what is humility? Well, I think this is the best definition of humility, and I think it's on the top left-hand corner 
of your screen. It is this Christian humility is having an accurate view of who you are before God and, and others. Humility is not thinking too highly of yourself nor too lowly of yourself. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said that humility is not thinking less about yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Humility is the opposite of pride. You know, sometimes it helps us to understand the meaning of something when we understand what it is not. So let's take a look at, at pride. You know, when we normally think of pride, I think our minds normally goes to, I know mine, my mind typically goes to a person that is arrogant, a person that is conceited, a person that is self-promoting, self-seeking, self-centered, a person that has an overinflated view of their intellect or their skills, right, or uh, their looks, a person that views themselves as superior to others, a person that's always looking down at, you know, their nose at others and thinking, boy, if they just had it together like me. It's a person that, you know, their thoughts just revolve around them. What's best for them? What's going to increase their happy, happiness, their reputation, their bank accounts? You know, uh, I think when I think of somebody that is a prideful person, I often think about a person that believes that they have the, the ability to decide what's the best path of life for themselves and for other people. And this is one aspect of pride, this overinflated view of yourself. But uh, there is a self-centeredness that derives from thinking too lowly of oneself as well. And C.S. Lewis, he does a great job talking about this. But, you know, pride is self-centeredness, period. That's what pride is. But we can be self-centered because we have too highly a view of ourselves. but we can also be self-centered because we have too low of a view of ourselves. Um, having a, a, a too lowly of a view of ourselves causes us to wallow in shame and self-pity and guilt. And when we are wallowing in these things, life becomes all about us, doesn't it? We were easily offended. We feel like we're always being overlooked. We draw attention to ourselves. We typically make conversations, uh, end up being about us, our problems, our heartache, our difficulty. We figure that, oh, nobody's going to help me, so I better just help myself. And we become Eeyores. You see, for Lewis, both forms of pride are really the same. They both make life all about us. Pride turns us inward on ourselves. Both forms of pride lead to a self-centeredness that causes us to leverage relationships and circumstances for our benefit. And you know what? Too high a view of yourself and too low a view of yourself also leads to all kinds of competitiveness. You know, if we are overinflated, we're always going to want to be better than the person that's next to us so that we can remain in our inflated state because that's where our identity lies. If we are underinflated, if we are deflated, we want to be better than the person next to us so that we can feel better about ourselves. 
C.S. Lewis, he points out the competitive nature of pride, of, of this self-centeredness, of thinking too highly of oneself and thinking too lowly of oneself. He writes this. I think it's fantastic. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. So pride is the self-centeredness that comes from thinking too highly of oneself or thinking too lowly of oneself. Humility, on the other hand, is a healthy self-forgetfulness. A healthy self-forgetfulness. It's an accurate view of ourselves and others that enables us to be God-centered and other-centered. That's what humility is. So the second question is, how do we get humility? How do we get it? How do we get this accurate view of ourselves? How do we get this accurate view of God? Well, this is where the story that I read to you regarding Moses helps us out. So let me explain a little bit about Moses. Um, And what we're going to find as we look at this story, God grows us in humility. The way we get humility is through, it's the same way we get faith, and it's something we don't want to hear. It's through trials, difficulty, and pain, and failure, and also through redemption. So those are the two ways that we can grow, that God uses, I think the main ways he uses to grow us in humility. Let's first consider God grows our humility through trials and failure. So here's Moses' story. If you were to read in Exodus uh, 1, you would read about Pharaoh, who is the king of Egypt. And this guy is just paranoid that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, Hebrews, Israelites, same thing, they were growing in number and, and just really increasing And he got to the point where he's so neurotic about the idea of the Israelites joining a a force, a nation that's in opposition to Egypt and going to war against Egypt. Or he may have been worried about some kind of revolt among the Israelite people as well. And so what Pharaoh did is he ended up ordering that all newborn male Israelite boys be killed. Um, So that, that was the decision he Made. And, and our passage here in Exodus 2 tells us about this miraculous story of how l- the life of Moses was spared from Pharaoh's com- you know, command to murder all newborn male Israelites. And what ends up happening is he's spared by no other, than, no other person than a Pharaoh's daughter. And, and, and what ends up happening is Moses is, is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he ends up going to live in Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's household, in his palace. Now, was Pharaoh aware of Moses, the, this Israelite living in his household? Well, did Pharaoh's daughter conceal Moses' identity? We don't know. We don't have answers to these questions. We just know that Pharaoh grew up in, or uh, Moses grew up in Pharaoh's palace. And which means Moses would have had an amazing experience. He would have been educated 
by the best people and would have received the best education that there was in the world. From what I understand, Egypt was one of the most academic and scientifically advanced societies among ancient cultures. And so it's reasonable to think that Moses was instructed in geography and history and arts and writing and literature and philosophy and music. Acts 7.22 says this about Moses. Acts 7.22 says, And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. He received the best education in Pharaoh's palace. He also would have eaten the, the best foods. He would have been waited on hand and foot. He was a part of the royal family, so he lived a royal lifestyle with you know, royal treatment. The ancient uh, Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Moses was heir to the throne of Egypt, and that while a young man, a young man, he led, he led the Egyptian army to be victorious in a battle against the Ethiopians. We can't be certain, but it is highly likely that Moses was on the fast track to some huge, big position of power in Egypt. And then something changes. Some time before age 40 for Moses, he comes to this belief that God was going to use him to deliver the Israelites from oppression in Egypt. Hebrews 11 talks about Moses being led to this conclusion. And Moses was right. God was planning to use him to rescue the Israelites. Now you say, well, this doesn't sound like a humble story, does it? He grows up in a palace, experiencing the best of what life has to offer, and now he is the chosen, God's chosen man to rescue the Israelites. Well, here's what happen. The problem was that Moses miscalculated God's timing and his way to rescue the Israelites. One day Moses was out and he was he witnessed an Egyptian beating up an Israelite. And so what he did is the our passage today tells us he looks around and made sure nobody was around and he kills the Egyptian, right? In Acts 7, 23 through 25, describes why he did this. If you were to read that passage, it would tell you that Moses thought by killing the Egyptian, that that would enable his fellow Israelites to recognize him as their deliverer. And, and I, my guess is that I'm sure Moses thought that you know, based on his education and his royal background and his success and his great sympathy for the Israelite people, that surely uh, his killing of the Egyptian would, would enable him to find credibility in the Israelites' eyes. They would rally around him, and then he could lead this revolt. His plan backfired. The very next day, there were two Israelite men fighting, and the one who was throwing the blows, Moses says to the guy, you know, why are you doing this? And essentially, and this is how the guy responds to Moses in Exodus 2.14, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And so instead of being accepted by the Israelites, here we have Moses being rejected by 
the Israelites. And Pharaoh ends up finding out about Moses killing this Egyptian and now wants to kill Moses. So now the, the owner of the household, the palace that Moses grew up in, this guy, the most powerful person in that nation, perhaps the world, wants to kill Moses. And so what Moses has to do is he has to go to this place called Midian. It's a desert to find refuge. And at the end of our passage, we, we find in verse 16 that he is sitting next to a well in the middle of nowhere in a desert all alone. Talk about from riches to rags, right? And you can imagine that as Moses sat next to that well, <laughs> he was thinking like, my life has just completely unraveled. My life has just completely fallen apart. I thought I was going to deliver my people. I thought they were going to accept me. I thought I was destined for greatness. And here he is sitting next to a well, probably in complete shock. He went from dreaming of saving Israel to being on the run to save his own life. He went from the royal palace to messing up royally. That's what happened. But what was God doing? Well, God, he was using Moses' trials and his difficulty to grow Moses in humility. That's what God was doing. Moses was destined for greatness. Moses would be the one that God would use to part the Red Sea. Moses was the one who would receive the Ten Commandments. Moses was the one who would go up on the mountain and meet with God. Can you imagine that if Moses didn't grow in humility, how he would have responded to being this great leader? His head would have swelled. You know, Moses became arguably the greatest figure in the Old Testament. He needed to be humbled before he was exalted. Humiliation has to come before exaltation. Humiliation has to come before exaltation. And so for 40 years, what happened for Moses is he worked in the desert as a shepherd. And if you read what Egyptians thought about shepherds and sheep, they hated them. Sheep, they were a very uh, rich agricultural society, and the sheep would eat all their crops. They hated sheep and shepherds, and that's what Moses is doing for 40 years. Can you imagine? You think your difficulty and your circumstance and your pain has lasted long? 40 years. Instead of leading mighty armies, Moses, he's reduced to leading sheep. Instead of being a public speaker to thousands of people, Moses is reduced to talking to sheep by himself in the desert. And you know what? God's plan worked. God's plan to create humility in Moses' work. Check out Exodus 3. If you were to flip your page in your Bible, we don't have it on the screen, and really you don't even have to turn there, but what ends up happening is God says, hey, Moses, yes, he comes to him after this 40 years in the desert, and he says, you are going to deliver my people from Egypt. 
And Moses' response is one of humility. Moses responds in Exodus 3.11, and he says, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? If, if, if God would have came to Moses while he was living in the royal palace and told him that, Moses would have probably been like, let's go, let's do it. I know I am. Let's make it happen. I'm smart. I've had an amazing education. I'm a leader. Let's do it. Numbers 12.3 says this about Moses. When you love, I would love for this to be true of me. Now, the man, Moses, was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth. Remarkable. Moses' mistake and then his 40 years in Midian taught him that his talents, his skills, his pedigree, his abilities were insufficient to carry out the call God had placed on him. In the self-centeredness of pride that, inf- that has an overly inflated view of oneself was ripped out of Moses. He was able to finally see himself accurately, small, finite, utterly dependent on God, limited in intelligence, and more sinful and flawed than he ever dared believe. Are you in the middle of one of life's deserts? Could it be that God is humbling you out of an act of love? Could it be that he is ripping this type of pride out of you that is causing you to be self-centered because you view yourself too highly? Could it be that God wants you to understand how flawed you really are? Could it be that he wants to bring you by breaking you to a place of utter dependency and reliance on him. I meet with a group of local pastors on a regular basis, and we've been sharing our testimonies so that we can understand one another, so that we can get to know each other more intimately. And there has been one theme that I have heard in all of the testimonies that these pastors have shared. I think it's six other pastors They've all spoke about this time of God breaking them of the kind of pride that has an overly inflated view of themselves. They've all talked about God just ripping that out of them. Because I think as pastors especially, we can start to develop a savior complex where we think that it's going to be our talents and our abilities and our charisma that is able to grow the church both numerically and spiritually. And so God brings us, I think especially as pastors through these trials, to beat that kind of pride out of us. And the more gifted, the more charismatic, the more ability you have to lead, I think the greater there is, uh, the greater the risk of falling into that trap. When Mary and I came back from our sabbatical, I, I sat up here and told you about just a tremendous desert experience I had dealing with anxiety and even a bit of depression. And um, as I talked about that, I, I explained how I was struggling in a way that I never thought I would. I was like Moses in this place that I never thought I would be in. But God allowed that experience into my life so that he would create in me such 
dependence on him. More than ever, through that desert experience, I was brought to this place where I wanted to be all in only for Jesus. More than ever, I was brought to this place of being aware of my own weaknesses and my need for his grace. It was a very humbling process. It was a very painful process. At times, it was a very embarrassing process. But it was good because God was in it, and he was humbling me. Now, you need to understand this as well. Moses needed more than trials and difficulty to come to a place of humility. Because the danger is, once that overinflated view of ourself is ripped out of us, we're in danger of falling into pride's opposite trap, which is in way underinflated view of ourselves, where we just see ourselves as like nothing but worms. And Moses, I believe, was tempted to wallow in this place of shame and guilt and pity. And I bet as the time and the years rolled on while he was in the, in the desert, he was probably thinking, I am a lost cause. I am nothing more than a failure. I've messed up too badly for God to use me. You see, Moses was definitely, I think, on the verge. He may have gotten there where he was in this, getting into this other place of the other component of pride. Instead of having a superiority complex, I think Moses was in danger of having an inferiority complex that would cause him to be self-absorbed, self-centered in his problems and pain. In Exodus 3, Moses, if you were to look at it, uh, Moses continually rejects God's call on him. Continually rejects it. I think that's evidence that he was heading that way into this inferiority complex. And so what Moses needed and what we need is not only trials and difficulty, but we also need redemption. You see, Moses, he needed to know that he was created in the image of God, that he was so valuable to God, that he was loved by God, and that God was with him, and that God would redeem his situation by working out this difficult situation for Moses' ultimate good. And we don't have all the we don't have time to go into all the details, but this is what God does for Moses in Exodus 3. He shows Moses that, hey, I am going to be with you. I will use you. And I think we are like Moses in this sense. We need trials from keeping us from getting too big of a head, but we need God's redemption to keep us from getting too low. Another way of saying this is we need the gospel. We need God's truth about himself and about us if we are going to grow in humility. The gospel has to so flood us and wash over us. It has to flood our minds and our souls. It has to get into our bones, right into our DNA. Because the gospel tells us that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. In fact, we are so sinful that it took the death of God himself to pay for the penalty. That's how serious and how sinful we are. But, and this is so important, 
the gospel also tells us that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. How do we know? The same way we knew how sinful we are is that Jesus, that God would send his one and only son to die for us so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be reconnected to God, so that God's spirit could come and live inside of us and make us anew from the inside out. That's how we know we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. You see, if we don't understand the depth of our sin, we're going to become overinflated and self-absorbed. If we don't understand God's love for us, and the value that he places on us and how we're made in his image and that he did so much to purchase us back from sin and death, if we don't understand that, we're going to get too low and become self-absorbed. The gospel is the only thing that can give us humility. It's the only thing that can lead us to think less of ourselves. It's the only thing that can give us an accurate view of ourselves and of God and of other people. Maybe you're here this morning, and this pride of having an overinflated view of yourself is not an issue. And what I've found is more Christians struggle with the opposite thing. More Christians see themselves as just full of shame. They're full of shame. They're full of guilt. They're not good enough. That, that's the voice. That's, it, there's a voice inside of them that's always telling them they're not good enough. You're not a good enough mom. You're not a good enough dad. You're not a good enough husband. You're not a good enough wife. You're not a good enough employee. You're not even a good enough Christian. And so we need that gospel, that part of the gospel to wash over us that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Humility, what is it? It's an accurate view of yourself, God, and others. How do you get it? Through failures and trial and trials, and the gospel becoming very real to us and getting in our bones. Now, finally and very quickly, why do you need it? Why do you need humility? Why do you need it? I'm gonna give you three reasons real quick. You need humility so you don't miss out on a relationship with God. You need humility so you don't wreck your relationships with others. You need humility so you, you become a servant. So first, you need humility so you don't wreck your relationship with God and so that you can have one. The Bible makes it very clear in James 4 that God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And the only way we can come to God and start a relationship with him is if we come in humility, which is repentance we have to say, I've screwed up. I've tried to be the master of my own life. I've made a mess of things. Jesus, I am coming to you. I'm humbling myself and coming to you. And you are going to be now the authority that rules my life. And so to start a relationship with God, we need humility. To have a relationship with God, we need humility. So that's why you need it. Because you need God. The second reason you need it it's because you will wreck your relationships if you don't have humility. I'm telling you, there, there is nothing worse, and you've experienced this, and maybe you're this person in a relationship, but there's nothing worse than having to relate to a person with a, an arrogant, overinflated 
thinking, view of themselves person. They're never wrong. It's always your fault. Never, they never make mistakes. They always know the best way. They always got to figure it out. Usually it's their, you know, it's, it's their highway, their road, or their road or the highway, or however that expression goes, right? My way or the highway. Yeah, that's it. It's just, it's hard to have a relationship with that person, and they will wreck their relationships with other people because they're so self-centered in their pride, in their arrogance. But you know what else? There's nothing more frustrating than trying to love a person that has too low a view of themselves. They can't take a compliment. They, They won't receive it. They're always, they're always, it's about them. It's about their pain, their problems. It wears you out trying to love a person like that. Going to one extreme or the other will wreck your relationships. And thirdly, you need humility to become a servant. In God's kingdom, greatness isn't measured by your bank account. It's not measured by how much power or what your status is in the world. It's measured by one thing, or a couple things, but one very important thing is, are you a servant? Greatness is measured by service in the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 42 through 45 says this, but Jesus called called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Moses was humbled so that he could become great by becoming a servant. His years of having to serve sheep as a shepherd prepared him to serve the flock of Israel. Humility allows us to view our neighbor as just as important to us. Humility allows us not to look down our noses at people in need because our humility tells us that we are needy. Humility allows us to extend love that we've received in Christ. Humility allows us to get our focus off of ourselves so that it can get on to other people. So that's Christian humility. That's what it is. That's how you get it, and that's why you need it. And you know what? We have an opportunity this evening at the block party to be great. Because we have an opportunity in humility to love those people that come into our building and come to our party in a way that sees them as royal, that sees them as first class, that sees them as just as good as us, if not better. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, you're the reason that we can even talk about humility. Philippians 2 tells us that you didn't consider equality with God something to hold on to. And to leverage just for your benefit. But you humbled yourself. And you humbled yourself 
all the way down to being treated as the worst criminal and dying the worst death, all because you came to serve and not to be served. Because you came focused on us and focused on your Father. Lord, we thank you that you are not a king that is just this arrogant, prideful, heavy-handed ruler. You are a humble king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.